Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. Last fall, I started thinking about this year and uh, where, we, where I wanted to go and where I wanted to take us as a congregation and began praying about what would follow the book of Romans the best. A young Mr. Christian Bland sent me a detailed email suggesting that we would benefit greatly if we spent the year in Leviticus. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Leviticus. We're in the midst, uh, some of you are reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm doing it a little differently this year. Uh, uh, You know, you read a little bit from the Old Testament, a little bit from uh, uh, the New Testament, a little bit from uh, uh, Psalms, and a little bit from Proverbs. And that that breaks up the the Old Testament in odd ways for me. So I decided that this year I was just going to read through the, the, the Old Testament and then, and then do the year through the Bible with the New Testament and Psalms and, and, uh, uh, and Proverbs. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in Leviticus now. And, and Leviticus is where all great intentions of reading the Bible in a year go to die. And, and the, the first seven chapters, now we're only in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. The first seven chapters of Leviticus is is all about offerings. And just listen to these last few verses of the seventh chapter. These then are the regulations for the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the ordination offerings, the fellowship offerings, which the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord in the desert of Sinai. Now, you want to know what real suffering is? Trying to figure out what all those offerings are. There is a detailed system of offerings and sacrifices that are laid out for the nation of Israel as they make their way from 400 years in slavery en route to the promised land. I mean, certainly they had their narratives. They had their stories. They knew about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now they were witnessing God at work in their lives in miraculous ways. But they still needed guidance. They needed direction. And God gives them the law, three different kinds of law, to help them find their way. He gives them a moral law, teaching them how to live in relationship with one another and with God. He gives them a civil law so that they can form a functioning community. And He also gives them a ceremonial law that prevents them from being assimilated into other cultures. It gives them a unique identity. And in the midst of those ceremonial laws are these extensive offerings 
and sacrifices that need to be made. Some out of gratitude, but many to cover the sins of the people. Sins of, of omission, sins of commission. Sins that you know that you committed. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice for the nation of Israel for all the sins that nobody knew they committed. And for just that one moment, everybody was right with God. But then you walk out of the sanctuary or the temple or what it is, you have a thought and what? You, I mean, you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And this was over and over and over. And I believe that in part, one of the reasons why God set this out was to keep the people before Him and to help them to recognize that sin has consequences and that it will cost. And it keeps, it keeps that before the people on a regular basis. For centuries, this was carried out. Idealized in Passover, in the deliverance from physical slavery until Jesus comes on the line. Through the incarnation, and John the baptizer says to his disciples when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the, sin of the, of the world. Well, that would have just knocked them over to hear those words. Why would God need a lamb? I understand why I need a lamb once a year. But why in the world would God need a lamb if not to offer the perfect sacrifice that would once and for all deal with sin in our lives and create an opportunity for us to be freed from a slavery of a different kind, a slavery to sin. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to the book of Hebrews. In this book, there is great theology. As, as the opening chapter talks about the importance of Jesus and how he is above the angels, superior to the angels, because there was this, this false theology this, that, that emerged during the intertestamental period where the, where, the, where the Jews began to think that the only way to approach a holy God was through an intermediary, because he was so wholly other. But Jesus breaks down that barrier. And the author wants to make sure that the readers know and understand that they need no intermediaries, that they now have direct access through Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human. And that's a challenge right there. What does it mean to be fully God and fully human? And we wrestle with that to this very day. But the author of Hebrews wants us to understand the connection and the importance of not just the divinity of Jesus, but also the humanity of Jesus. And we started out in chapter 2 paying more careful attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away, that we stay zeroed in, dialed in on who Jesus is. And last week we looked at the middle part of the second chapter and putting everything under Jesus, God left nothing that was not subject to Him. 
Yet in present, we don't see everything subject to him. That's that already but not yet that we talked about last week. We have creation that was good. We have the fall, which was bad. But we have redemption through Christ. And now we find ourselves in a period of restoration as God waits for all to hear the good news, to come to him patient, willing that none, desiring that none should perish. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And in our passage today, in, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes people holy and the ones who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely... It is not angels he keeps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. The theology in this section is so deep, but it is so important for us to grasp and to understand not only the full divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, but also his humanity. I love this in verse 10, where he says, in bringing many to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Just wrap your mind around that. The author of our salvation perfect through suffering. What what does he mean by that? First, let's take a look at the word author. And and you you may have a different translation. Uh, That word has been translated uh, in in some uh, pioneer that he's a pioneer, some a founder. Uh, I think that the, the old uh, New American Standard actually has captain, that, that, uh, that, that he should make the captain of their salvation, the pioneer of their salvation, the founder, the author. When you think about what an author does, what a captain does, what a pioneer does, they blaze a trail that others may follow. And that's what Jesus did. He blazed a trail that others may follow. In perfect salvation. What what does that mean for us? It means that it was finished. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? 
right before, he, right before he gave up the spirit, he said, it is finished. Think about Jesus as a, as a pioneer or an author laying down a, uh, laying down a path, a story that others will follow. Hacking through that, uh, uh, that, that, that territory that, that none had ventured into and ever returned. And of course, what we're speaking about here is the ultimate mystery that each and every one of us face. And that ultimate mystery is the mystery of death. And Jesus goes into that forest of death. And he comes out on the other side. It is his death and his resurrection that gives us hope. Others have gone into that, into that mystery, but they've not come back to tell us anything. Jesus came back, affirming once and for all that he is who he claims to be and letting us know that death is no longer to be feared as a destination. It is a doorway into which we enter into the presence of God. And both the one who makes us holy and who are made holy are of the same family so that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He invites us into that relationship. And he invited the disciples into that relationship as he walked with them. The function, the purpose of the incarnation, if you will, was to show us the face of God, to teach us how to live within the confines of the law and to punctuate our lives with grace. Because unlike Jesus, we are not perfect. So we punctuate our lives with grace. And, and when others come across our path and, and do ill toward us or mislead us or deceive us or cheat us, we respond with a different ethic reaching back for a cup of grace out of the ocean of grace that has been given to us. He invited us to call His heavenly Father our Father. We prayed that today. Our Father who art in heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I will declare your name among my brothers and sisters in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. That comes right out of Psalm 22. Think about Psalm 22 for a minute, people. How does that psalm begin? Anybody know? What are the first words of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sound familiar? Words Jesus uttered on the cross. Some would say, oh, at that point, Jesus felt totally abandoned. God turned, his, turned away from Jesus because he can't look on sin. And I say to that, if, if God can't look on sin, I'm in deep trouble. No, I believe. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And here's, a, here's, here's some homework for you. Go ahead and read Psalm 22. And, 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 and you'll see that it starts out very, very discouraging. And it describes crucifixion. But ultimately, he goes on to say, but my hope, my faith is in you. You will not abandon me. And it goes on to a very positive experience of God's faithfulness that flows right into Psalm 23 where you can exhale and you can say with confidence that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then Psalm 24 is a, is a psalm of coronation as king. Those three are meant to be read together. Read them. Our author is quoting the 22nd Psalm. 
that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. And again, I will put my trust in him. That comes from Isaiah 8. Read Isaiah 8 and then push it into chapter 9 because it is in chapter 9 of Isaiah where we get that rich, rich language. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be wonderful. Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And again, he says, here am I and the children that God has given to me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds power of death, that is the devil. Jesus became like us. We cannot say, well, you don't know what it's like, God. You know, you're up there in your ivory tower and, and, and you're God. You, know, you don't know what it's like to struggle. You don't know what it's like to suffer. You don't know what it's like to experience pain. You're a, a heavenly other being. Can't say that. Because Jesus took on flesh and blood to become just like us so that he could, he could identify with us, so that he could sympathize with us, so that he could help us. We can never say to God, you don't know how I feel. Oh, yes, I do. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why do, why do pioneers forge a new path or explorers go to places unknown? Why would he go into that and face that kind of death? Did he do it for fame? Did he do it for money? Did he do it for wealth, uh, notoriety? No, he did it for love. He did it for love. And he holds he did it that he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I think it was Woody Allen who said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I wrote in a paper in, in, in school that uh, death doesn't bother me at all, it's the dying part that I'm a little struggle with sometimes. But it is the great unknown. And there is some fear there, if we're honest with ourselves. As we get closer and closer to death, control slips away from our lives, as if we ever had any control to begin with. We start thinking about the things that we wanted to get accomplished and didn't. We think about the unknown and what lies ahead. It is the fear of death that binds and cripples so many people. In the first century, they threw the Christians into the Colosseum with the lions. And that was great sport for the Romans. For when they threw people into the Colosseum and let the lions loose, what did the people do? They ran, they screamed, they panicked. Why? Because of their fear of death. Oh, and how the people laughed. But when they threw the Christians into the Colosseum, they huddled together in the center and they prayed. And when the lions were released out into the, into the Colosseum and the people cheered, the lions rushed out, but they didn't see anybody running. They didn't see anybody screaming. And so they didn't know what to do. 
And so they just slowly kind of walked around until all of a sudden, you know, there's movement, a little slight movement here or there that caught their attention. And then they started tearing into the Christians, and the crowd was appalled because they had never seen someone die who had no fear of death. And that was actually the end of, of, of that spectator sport. The people wouldn't have it anymore because the fear of death had been removed. Jesus removes that fear, that fear of the unknown, that fear of incompletion, that fear of being out of control, not being able to take care of yourself, the fear of the loss of relationships. We don't lose relationships. We may be separated for a while. When my mother-in-law passed away, people would come up to my father-in-law, who's now 98 years old, and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And his response was, I didn't lose her. I know exactly where she is. She just changed addresses. The fear of death has been removed. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Last week, we ended with Jesus tasting death for, for all of us. And then we spent this time uh, uh, looking at what that death means and the suffering that Jesus went through. And then at the very end, he talks about Jesus being the high priest. And we're going to spend more time understanding what it means for Jesus to be our high priest in the, in the, in the weeks ahead as we un continue to unpack this incredible book and what it means for us that Jesus offers that sacrifice of the high priest on our behalf. A sacrifice that we're not able to make to fully satisfy a righteous and loving God. This is deep, deep theology, people. But it's theology that we need to understand and really own. We need to recognize who Jesus is as the author of our salvation, as the one who has identified in every way, shape, and form as we, yet without sin. He knows he sympathizes, and he can help. He stands as our advocate, interceding for us before the throne of grace as the accuser points a finger and points out your flaws, your failures, your sinfulness. Jesus says, yes, don't deny any of that, but on that cross, I paid the price. It is finished. I suffered with you and for you that you may be with me forever. And that is our hope, and that is the good news that we celebrate this day. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. So you're probably wondering, well, gee, how does all this tie into Scottish Heritage Sunday? Well. It doesn't. <laughs> Except for the fact that in life, there are going to be many people that are going to try and tell you how you should live your life. 
And the whole point of the Reformation, whether it be the Protestant Reformation or the Scottish Reformation, is to remind us to let no institution, no human being, tell us how to live out our faith in relationship to Jesus Christ. We have the Scripture. We have the disciplines. We have the vision of who Jesus is and how He lived His life. And we have the means to live out that vision. And the Reformation puts that responsibility upon us to know who Jesus is and to live out our lives in relationship with Him through the disciplines, allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and shape our lives so that when people look at us, they see not a Christian, they see not an institution, not a denomination, but they see a reflection of Jesus. Reformed and always reforming, going back to the Word, to learn again what it is we learned the first time, that we might be like him as we follow the path that he has laid before us. And in that sense, the Reformation lives on.